the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If the cross of Christ is all that it's meant to be, then it stands in time as the Magna Carta of the human soul that says no more. God sent his son into this world to destroy the works of the devil. And we see in time judgment in Jesus at Calvary's cross. The judgment that we deserve in him there. Continuing in the Revelation series, Pastor Michael Oxentenko's message today is entitled The Church of Pergamum and the Call to Biblical Obedience. That's The Church of Pergamum and the Call to Biblical Obedience, and you can find it online at reachingyourheart.com. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, please call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast. I'll have information on how you can attend the worship service in person if you would like. You can also attend anytime online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Let's get underway with the first portion of the Church of Pergamum and the call to biblical obedience. You know, many Christians today believe that they are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And because they are saved by faith without works as the basis of salvation, they also believe that obedience is not necessary. They treat salvation like a ticket to a ball game. Heaven is the ball game and salvation is the ticket. And all that matters is getting into the game. And when you get in, you can throw away the ticket and not worry about the implications of what it means to be saved. Now, it may come as a surprise for many Christians today to discover that Jesus did not die on the cross so sin would live forever in a place called heaven. Did you hear me? Christ didn't go to that cross to make us eternal sinners. I mean, if the cross of Christ is all that it's meant to be, then it stands in time as the Magna Carta of the human soul that says no more. God sent his son into this world to destroy the works of the devil. And we see in time judgment in Jesus at Calvary's cross. The judgment that we deserve in him there. The beloved disciple John made it very clear that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And if you are velcroed to the works of the evil one, even if you profess to be a Christian, Dear heart, listen to me. You will be destroyed with the evil one in the end. It is true that grace is free in Jesus. Just soak it in. Grace is free in Jesus. But it's also true that Jesus died on the cross for every one of your sins. And that makes it costly grace. And it is true and certain that we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Sole fide, by faith alone we receive the gift. But the grace we receive as a gift is costly grace because it costs God everything to give it. It's not cheap grace because it costs a man or a woman everything to receive it. For Christ said, if you're not willing to deny yourself, if you're not willing to leave father or mother from me and the truth of the gospel, you're not worthy of the gift. It is free, but it 
cost God everything to give it. The faith that lays hold of Jesus, dear heart, cannot hold the world in the same hand. I'll repeat myself. The faith that lays hold of Jesus cannot hold the world in the same hand. The call of the gospel is a call to reject the world and to accept Jesus by seizing him with the faith of Jesus, the hand that lays hold of him. And we receive as a gift the righteousness that we could never produce. In our study of the seven churches, we have begun a journey to explore the seven epic attitudes of the seven churches of Revelation. Now think about this. God has given us in the picture of the seven churches what we need to know for vital attitudes in our growth with God. They represent seven distinct church eras from apostolic times to the end of time. It's true the seven churches represented local churches in John's day, symbolic of the universal church in his time, but it's also symbolic of the universal church from the beginning of the apostolic age to the end of time. Now, while these seven churches represented real congregations in John's day, they have the key to epic attitude responses that govern our walk with Christ. The first church, the church of Ephesus, represents the church of the first century that lost its first love. It was good at fighting heresy, but it slipped into attitudes that compromised love. I mean, onward Christian soldiers has its place, but if you have to turn your back on the person that God came to save in your heart and mind, then it is not right. They had lost their first love. The second church, the church of Smyrna, represents the church of the late 3rd and early 4th centuries that was persecuted for its faith. For 10 days it suffered persecution, symbolizing the 10 years of the great persecution instituted by the emperor Diocletian in the year 303 A.D. A 10-year plan to wipe out Christianity. It ended in 313 A.D. in the Edict of Milan. In the Edict of Milan, the Emperor Constantine granted religious freedom to the Christian world. You know, sometimes we speak negatively about Constantine in our ranks. The fact is that Constantine gave religious freedom, ending the great persecution, and we should give credit where it is due. The first epic attitude represented by the Church of Ephesus is a call to love. The second epic attitude represented by the Church of Smyrna is the call to faith. And the third epic attitude represented by our topic today, the church of Pergamum, is the call to biblical obedience. Love, faith, and obedience. They are not just attitudes. They are actions that affect attitudes. Active attitudes that change a life. That's what we're looking at here. We're not talking about theory. We're talking about that which makes a difference in our life. Unless faith and love and obedience are active ingredients that form real truth for meaningful living in your personal life, it really doesn't matter what profession you have. It's just a fraud if you are not living the truth of God. Authentic Christianity is not official Christianity. Authentic Christianity is not the showmanship Christianity of the modern world. It's not a rock concert in church. It is active Christianity that is personal, real, and alive. It is Bible-based Christianity. Faith working through love is obedience in the life that loves God. You know, when I come to church, I'll be frank with you. I could care less for impressing the multitudes. When I come to church, I want to interact with men and women who love Jesus Christ, who love his word, who want to obey it and share it with other people who need it. That's what I come for. And I come also to grow in Christ because I'm not there. 
I want to be what he wants me to be. Revelation 2, 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamon, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I mean, this is an amazing kind of introduction to the letter. He says, I know exactly what you're going through. He says, I know what's going on, and I have the sword, and I know who dies for me. The church of Pergamon represents here the church after the Edict of Milan in A.D. 313, when the church became popular, when religious freedom took the heavy hand of persecution away. From Constantine in the early 4th century to Theodosius the Great in the latter part of the 4th century to Justinian the Great in the 6th century, the Christian church morphed from a persecuted church struggling to survive into the favored religion of the Roman Empire, and then it finally morphed into the official religion of the Roman Empire. The church that was persecuted by paganism, the church that was barely able to survive in time, oppressed the very people that had oppressed them and other Christians too. It was an amazing reversal. In a few hundred years, the church had changed roles. Like the letters to the church of Ephesus and Smyrna, the letter to the church of Pergamon begins with a portion of the vision of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1 that is essential for this period of church history. I mean, it's very clear in the seven churches that Christ, before he interacts with faults and virtues of the church, we see a vision of Jesus Christ. Now, notice what we don't see. We don't see a portion of the vision or any other part that relates to a human being. We see Jesus Christ, then we have Christ interacting. I'd like to start by making a statement before we move through this letter. And here it is. It is an historical fact that the early Orthodox Catholic Church gave us the Bible. Did you hear me? It is an historical fact that the early Orthodox Catholic Church gave us the Bible. And when we interact with these seven churches, we're not just looking at one church. We find the early apostolic church mentioned. We find the early Catholic church of orthodoxy mentioned. We will be looking at the medieval Catholic church. We will also be looking at the church of the counter-reformation and the Protestant awakening. And we will be looking at the great Millerite awakening and an end-time group of Christians who keep the Sabbath. All are mentioned in the seven churches. Why? Because Christ cares about his people in every part of the world, dear heart. There are people of God here. There are people of God there. And we find the seven churches, there is rebuke and there is counsel for every church age. And so let me repeat myself. The early Orthodox Catholic Church gave us the Bible. So whatever you think about medieval Catholicism, good or bad, you must remember that God used the early Catholic Church to give us the New Testament. So there's no room here for condescension in any way. We are interacting with the Bible and prophecy as Christ was working with his people to save them in time. To the church of Pergamum, Jesus Christ is here identified as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. In Revelation 1.16, this sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. Now in Revelation 19.15, Christ is pictured riding on a white horse. He's coming at the second coming with the armies of heaven, and he's coming to smite the nations of the earth that are opposing him with this same sharp two-edged sword. So we find this sword at the beginning of the church era. We find it at the end. It is important for all of history. So what is this sharp two-edged sword for? 
The early Christians had no doubt what this symbol represented. Turn with me to Hebrews 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, 12. The Bible says, for the word of God is what? What does it say? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I mean, when you take your Bible, in fact, take your Bible and put it in your hand. Would you do that? Come on, right? put it in your hand. I want you to raise it high. Now, how many of you felt this is just a book in your hand? This is a living, breathing document that has power to transform your life, that has power to bring God into your life, that can, in the end, judge you if you reject it. This is the living, active Word of God you hold in your hand. In Revelation 19, 13, Jesus is called by the name, the Word of God. I mean, John 1, in the beginning was the Word. It's affirmed in Revelation 19, 13, that He is the Word of God. Christ is the living Word. And when He speaks, the Word of God comes from the living Word of God, who is Jesus Christ. It comes as words of God through the Scriptures to the church. That means Jesus Christ is the spiritual author of the Bible and the sustainer of Bible truth in the church. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, came from Jesus Christ right out of His mouth into your heart. So when you have your Bible in your hand, dear heart, you should not stand in judgment upon this book. You should hold it high and close to your heart because it is God's means to reach you and save you. Now what does all this mean? It means that the Bible is the extension of Jesus Christ here. People who think that they are smarter than the Bible have no idea what they're suggesting. I've met some of these people. I mean, it's an amazing thing. I have met a few who think that when they get an advanced degree in the study of the Bible or theology, that they're somehow smarter than God's Word, that they can stand in judgment upon this holy document. And I've heard them pontificating about how all the errors exist in the Bible, and then they try to show what they believe is a discrepancy. And, of course, the response is clear. We are to be impressed with this. Well, I'm not impressed with it at all. When someone stands in judgment upon the Word of God, that person is judged by the Word of God. The very word they manipulate in order to appear smart, the very word they stand in judgment on will judge them and will consume them if they do not repent of this kind of arrogance. Friend, the Word of God is as sharp as a two-edged sword. The man or woman in the church who rejects the Word of God and trivializes it away, who avoids its teaching will eventually be smitten by it if there is no repentance in the life. So when you hold your Bible in your hand, you're holding a very powerful document. God's Word is active and alive, and His Word must be obeyed in the church. It is not an optional thing to set aside the Word of God. You can't do that. The Word of God must be obeyed in the church. Verse 13 says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. At the Acropolis of Pergamum, and I've been there, It's really an amazing sight. If you ever get a chance to tour the seven churches, and I hope we can do that in coming years, you have to go to that Acropolis at Pergamum. High above the city, the worship complex of Pergamum contained a throne to the highest god in the Greek pantheon. His name was Zeus. He wielded the thunderbolt. Now, no doubt those early Christians, they knew that this high altar, which is now in the East Berlin Museum, you can see it as it was taken brick by brick, When they saw this high altar, they knew that it represented the throne of Satan who claimed to be the prince of this world. If you were to look in the architecture of that altar, you will see serpents fighting with beings that look like angels. It's almost like a great controversy picture being mapped out in Greek mythology. 
Now, the city of Pergamon was also famous in Asia Minor for being the center of the cult of the Roman Emperor. We'll continue with today's Reaching Your Heart and Pastor Michael Oxentenko in just a moment. If you'd like to attend the worship service, I will have details on how you can do that here at the close of our broadcast today, so please stay tuned. You can always attend online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Many archived messages are available there for you, and you can attend the live service in a streaming format at that website, reachinghearts.org slash video. Let's continue now with Pastor Michael Oxentenko in today's Reaching Your Heart. It was the place more than any other where Caesar was worshipped as God. It pointed to Caesar's throne in Rome, which was the real throne of Satan at that time in the world. Why? Because Satan had boldly told Christ that all the kingdoms of the earth in Luke 4 had been given to him. And he uses the special word in the Greek for the inhabited Roman Empire. He was saying, I rule the Roman Empire, and if you bow down and worship me, I will make you Caesar. I'll yank Tiberius Caesar off the throne. Now, Caesar had many titles, but one title is significant here. According to the Roman historian Suetonius, Julius Caesar was called father of his country, but after he died, he was worshipped as a god, so he was father and god. Now, the Latin word for father is pater, and the root word for father is the root word pa. Let's practice it. Pa. Now, when I used to take my boys camping, we used to go out, and I had these stories I'd make up to kind of keep them interested in the camping adventure. And, you know, I I had this mythical monster in the woods that would come just this close to the tent, but somehow a hero would stand up and deal with him. And I really thought about what to name this big monster, and finally it just dawned on me, we called him Big Paul. Now, we're thinking of the Paul, but it was a wordplay on Paul. Because ultimately, when you're in the woods, it's Paul who's supposed to rescue you from whatever. The story of Big Paul. Now, in the Greek, the word is papas, or papas, and it was derived from the Indo-European root word papa. Now, we still have that word today, don't we? We say papa. In this word, the ancient root pa is duplicated twice. And very often in these old words, when we have duplication, it is for emphasis. The word star in Hebrew is a duplication of an ancient word, which means like twinkle, twinkle, little star. And we find here papa, that ancient root word that is all the way down the timeline to where we live today. Now, I can remember the first time I heard that word. My little boy. Pa, 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 ah, ba. Don't these words come out of children's mouths? Of course, in the English language, we say, no, it's dada. But they start out with the B and the P. Papa, Abba. And did not Jesus call his father, Abba, Father? When he was praying, it's really similar to Papa off of the lips. Every baby says something like Papa, Abba, when it learns to call for Father. Romans 8, the Bible says that we call out to God as Abba, Father. There is one Father of us all, the Bible says, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Abba, Papa, or something like it. These are the sounds that are genetically wired in a baby's brain for a father to hear. We say daddy in our culture, but we also say papa or pa. Caesar was both father and God. And every Christian knew that there's only one father and God overall. God is papa and not Caesar. A Christian could never sacrifice to Caesar and call him papa without denying 
God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. And so there was a conflict of religious ideals. There was a place that the Christian church had to draw a line in the sand and say, we go no further. We stand for God, the Father of us all. In Revelation 2.13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The true believers at Pergamum were commended for holding fast to God's name. In the Bible, God's name and God's law is really the same thing. In Deuteronomy 6, the Bible says, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then he goes on to say, you know, these words mean the Ten Commandments of Deuteronomy 5. Shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and they shall be on your hand. Now, it's no accident in the mark of the beast issue at the end of time that we have an attack upon the law of God. The law of God that goes as frontlets between your eyes, that goes in the hand, we find in the mark of the beast, the beast putting his law there where God's law belongs. But we also find in Revelation 14.1, it says, He saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, those who had his father's name and his name on their foreheads. You see, God's name goes where God's law goes because God's name is God's law. The person who sets aside God's Ten Commandment law willfully, given at Sinai, spoken by God, has really assaulted God's name. In 2 Samuel 6, 2, the Bible is very clear that the Ark of the Covenant that contained the Ten Commandments was called by the name of the Lord. When that box was moving and it contained the Ten Commandments, they said, there is the Lord, that's his name. It was the box that held the Ten Commandments. When God reveals his name, he is really revealing his character. And when he spoke the law, he articulated in ten succinct statements who he is. The Ten Commandment law is a revelation of God's hidden character. As Jesus is a revelation of God's character too, the two are one. The Bible teaches in John 17, 11, that the name of God is Jesus' name and that he came to reveal it to his disciples. The Christians of the 4th century struggled to keep the Ten Commandment law of God in a time of compromise and persecution. At the Council of Laodicea in 336 AD, there arose men who claimed the title of Father, Papa. They called themselves church fathers. Now, God didn't call them this. They called themselves this. At the Council of Laodicea in 336 AD, they gathered themselves together, and by the power they felt inside themselves, they officially attempted to change the Ten Commandment law of God. I mean, these church fathers stood in judgment on God's moral law. It's something they could fix. Imagine that, looking at the Ten Commandments and saying, well, we don't like this, we don't like that, let's fix it. It was unbelievable arrogance in the church, the clergy, the people who had fought for the Bible. I mean, the very people who had fought off heresy to determine what the Bible is were at that time changing the Ten Commandments right in front of the church's eyes shamelessly. They called themselves fathers, and they were really wolves messing with both the sheep and the shepherd. Now, at the Council of Laodicea in 364 AD, a later council, these fathers, so to speak, produced canon law to defy God's law. I'd like to read you something. Canon 29. Here's what they put in writing. Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath. They recognized there was a Sabbath. But they must work on that day. Now, when you read the Ten Commandments, it's very clear. You shall do no work on that day. It's the day for God. And they, in canon law, canon 29, said, you must work on that day, 
rather honoring the Lord's day, and if they can, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, that means keeping the Sabbath, let them be anathema from Christ. Now imagine this. You're trying to keep the fourth commandment, and the church fathers come along with Canon 29. They say, if you try to obey God, you are severed from Christ. It was an amazing development. At the same council in Canon 1649 and 51, these so-called church fathers recognized the Sabbath was really Saturday. They knew what day it was. They just didn't care. They didn't care what God's word said. They stood in judgment on it. In the fourth commandment, God said, rest on the seventh day. And the church fathers here said, you had better go to work or you are severed from Christ. In the fourth century, Socrates, a church historian of the Orthodox Catholic Church, provided the context for this struggle over the fourth commandment. And you can tell he's probably a Sabbath keeper. Look what he says. For although almost all churches throughout the world celebrate the sacred mysteries on the Sabbath of every week, meaning the seventh day, yet the Christians of Alexandria and at Rome, on account of some ancient tradition, now he doesn't say God's word, but tradition, they have ceased to do this. I mean, these so-called church fathers became the champions of their tradition, and they ceased to be the champions of the Word of God. Now imagine the transition. They started coming up with stuff, and people started following them as if they were equal to Paul and Peter when they were disagreeing with these ancient apostles. The city of Rome had been the seat of the Roman Empire, and now it was by compromise there that these church fathers attacked the very Word of God. Well, that will wrap up the first portion of The Church of Pergamum and the Call to Biblical Obedience. We'll complete this broadcast the next time we are together. And if you would like to attend in person at the church, we would love for you to do that. That address is 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland. 20707. Or if you're more comfortable, you're certainly welcome to watch online at reachinghearts.org slash video. Reachinghearts.org slash video. The live broadcast will be streaming and available for you on that website. Reachinghearts.org slash video. Thanks for listening, and we do pray that God is reaching your heart. 